it's been a rewarding job and it's been challenging. And I, I'm not going to let some of those people take away from the heart and soul that I've put into this job, because that's really what I've done all these years. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another new episode of the Rebuild Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jordan Zerm, no longer at Cleve Zerm on Twitter. I am now simply at Jordan Zerm. I've lost my blue check. It's devastating. Thank you for asking. Uh, Did I know I would lose the blue check before I changed my Twitter handle? No. Would I have done it if I knew that? Probably not. Am I uh, moving forward and going to send a strongly worded email to Twitter about it? Absolutely. And that, on the intro that you just heard, is Mary Kay Cabot, Browns writer for Cleveland.com, covered the Browns forever. Spoke with her for a great interview on this episode of the podcast, and we will get to that in a moment. But more importantly, somewhat solemnly, the Cleveland Browns 2020 NFL season has come to an end, albeit at a point far beyond where it usually comes to an end. It is pretty amazing to be talking about and be able to talk about Cleveland Browns football into the month of January, when usually uh, by September it's over uh, in our minds and in our hearts. So really just an incredible run for this Browns team in this type of season. We've Talked a lot about it on this pod, about the circumstances that Kevin Stefanski inherited, taking over this team as a both a first-year head coach himself and taking over the Cleveland Browns for the first year. Pretty miraculous. And I know he was voted the Pro Football Writers uh, Coach of the Year today. Well, you're listening to this on Friday, yesterday. Uh, hopefully he just wins that award in general as the official coach of the year because I think he deserves it, uh, especially for all the things he had to deal with from COVID to no training camp to no preseason, all that stuff. I think we've we've hit on it plenty, but Kevin Stefanski deserves some sort of giant trophy for the effort that he put in as a head coach this season and to guide this team to where it needed to go. You know, I don't want to spend too much time as we're a little bit removed now from the Browns' loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. I think other podcasts have covered it. I think, you know, the game was what it was. Um, just the few points that I think I wanted to touch on. You know, it's it's a little bit bittersweet because there was absolutely the opportunity, especially once Patrick Mahomes went out, to win that game and go to the AFC Championship. And for the Browns to be down 19-3 to to a powerhouse of an offensive football team. I mean, honestly, even without Patrick Mahomes, the weapons on that offense are absurd. It's like, go, it's like going on a shopping spree and you have unlimited money and you can just go to any aisle and pick whatever you want. Like, from Tyreek Hill to McCall Hardman to Travis Kelsey to... Even guys like Byron Pringle, like they just have all these guys that are so quick and so good at what they do. They didn't even have Sammy Watkins. They didn't have Clyde Edwards-Alaire. They don't really need a running game, but that's, you know, another another story. But their offense is just so, so explosive um, that even with Chad Henney back there, they can still do some things offensively that for a defense it sort of struggles like the Browns. You know, it wasn't kind of like this huge, like, oh, okay, well, that's the game. Um 
you know, I think we've we've rehashed the Rashard Higgins fumble into the end zone and no call on a sort of pretty obvious uh, targeting penalty that on uh, Dan Sorensen, which you know should have been called, and if that gets called, the Browns you know get the ball at the one yard line and probably punch it in, and that game probably feels very very different. Um, I thought Baker Mayfield played really well again, even though I thought the Browns game plan was not exactly as good as it could have been. Uh, obviously the Browns kind of clock management was one of the first times that I think Kevin Stefanski faltered a little bit in that area. Um, his use of timeouts and, and sort of the play calling, especially on that final drive of the game. I think we can debate the fourth and nine called a punt for a while. I think once you get into the seven, eight, nine yardage area, even the most, devout go for it on fourth kind of people like myself there's a little bit of hesitation but I think ultimately you know even if you're feeling good about putting the ball back into Chad Henney's hands I think you'd always rather want to be able to control the outcome of the game rather than just kind of hoping that your defense can stop the offense I think especially when you're facing a team like the Chiefs even with a backup quarterback it's the the chances you're going to stop them from picking up a couple first downs is just low I'd rather you kind of go for it on fourth and, you know, hold the destiny in your hands than kind of punt and just hope for the best. But, you know, it, it was a tough decision, and I, I, I'm not going to kill Stefanski for that. And I think all in all, all in all, they just didn't, you know, they just didn't have it that day. I think, you know, Nick Chubb drops a screen pass, a couple of passes, but a screen pass. I tweeted the screenshot from my Twitter account, but had wide open grass in front of him. It was a, I believe it was a second and 20. So the Browns were just trying to get some yardage back, but he would have probably picked up the first down, maybe more. Um, big holding call on Wyatt Teller wiped out in the first quarter, a kind of 30 yard pass to Jarvis Landry that put the Browns on the other side of the field. Sack took the Browns out of a drive when they were in the Chiefs territory on another set of downs in the first. So the Browns just kept getting into these second and third and longs, and it doesn't matter who you're playing. It's just not getting behind the sticks is always a huge detriment to keeping your drives alive, and the Browns just kept running into those and kept running into those. I, it just felt like it was third and 20 or third and 15 or third and 10 all all game long, and they converted a couple of them, but others, it was just it was too much. And, and in the end, it just wasn't quite their time yet. And, um, you know, the Chiefs, Especially if Mahomes is healthy and back, I feel very strong. They'll probably win another Super Bowl, although the Packers may have something to say about that. But they're just a really good football team. And, you know, what Henny was able to do on the third and 14 run and then the fourth and one pass to Tyreek Hill and sort of how the Chiefs called that game is just a sign of, you know, a really, really well-run football team. And I think the Browns are on their way to being that kind of team. Uh, and so, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a bummer of a day because – when Henny threw that sort of Hail Mary interception, that was kind of like an arm punt to, to Carl Joseph, and the Browns got the ball back, you just sort of felt like this is it, this is the drive, they're going to score and they're going to take the lead, and oh my God, we're going to go to the AFC Championship. And it didn't didn't materialize, and I think that's going to hurt for a little while. But um, there are only reasons to be optimistic about what this Browns team is going to look like next year. They should be better than they were this year. Defense especially should be better than they were this year, and they should be a legitimate Super Bowl contender. And it's going to be really fun to see what they do in the offseason. It's going to be really fun to talk about that as we you know sit back and watch the, this championship weekend and then the Super Bowl and, and sort of dream of what the Browns could be next season. So, you know, just big shout out to big shout out to the Browns for being a normal football team for a season, and not even a normal football team, a really good football team. 
that destroyed their division rivals in wildcard weekend and went toe-to-toe with the Chiefs. So it was a lot of fun. And I appreciate you guys uh, listening to the podcast every week and, and riding with me. And um, to wrap up this Brown season, I really wanted to have someone on who has covered the Cleveland Browns for a really long time. Um, Mary Kay Cabot from Cleveland.com has been doing this for a while. And I followed her for the longest time, uh, read her for the longest time. And she's sort of become, I think, in my opinion, the best local Browns beat reporter. Um, I think she's really one of the only ones that breaks news from small things to big things about the Browns. Uh, so uh, she's consistently breaking stories, uh, developing sources, doing all of that. And I wanted to chat with her just about the season. One, I had some questions just as someone who has been in locker rooms before and sort of been a, was never a beat reporter, but a person that, you know, followed teams and wrote about teams and did all that. Just really curious how, like, covering a football team in the pandemic and what that was like and some really interesting insight on that from Mary Kay. And then just some stuff on Baker Mayfield and his future with the organization if he's solidified himself as as the quarterback of the future and what's going to happen with Odell Beckham Jr. And the biggest challenges for Andrew Berry in this offseason as he tries to round out this team. Um, and then I, w- I wanted to ask her about if you're on Cleveland sports Twitter and Browns Twitter in particular, there is this very weird and sort of head-scratching tendency for people to take pot shots at Mary Kay uh, on Twitter a lot uh, to a point where it became pretty uncomfortable um, to be on Twitter and see a lot of this stuff from um, mostly males, probably 100% males, dudes on Twitter, who uh, don't like the way Mary Kay asks questions or thinks she's trying to stir up drama or she's not cheerleading for their football team. And, you know, I think there's a, you can have legitimate gripes about if there's a story she wrote that you didn't agree with or you thought was too gossipy or, like, whatever it was. I think, you know, there are always – you can have critiques of, of writers and, and stories sometimes that they publish and all that. But she's, you know, no different from any beat writer anywhere um, and, and does a lot of really, really good work uh, – and the amount of sort of vitriol that she receives on Twitter as a, as a female reporter is pretty unfortunately representative of how I think is still a lot of female people in, in and around sports are treated. And uh, I wanted to ask her about it because I don't really think it's something she's spoken about a lot. Um, I know that, you know, behind the scenes and uh, I've been told by, you know, people I know that work at Cleveland.com that it's something that she's, you know, has she's struggled with in the past and, you know, feels like it's been very unwarranted and feels kind of targeted by it for whatever reason. So I wanted to kind of ask her and how she deals with that and how she sort of navigates the world of social media as a female um, football reporter in 2021, which is crazy. That's still a question that you have to ask, but it very much is. So um, just a really good conversation with Mary Kay. And I think her both her insight on the Browns and her sort of how she handles social media and sort of the backlash that she she gets for whatever reason uh, was really was really really good. So jump right into it. Brown season is over. Break it down with Mary Kay Cabot of Cleveland.com. Thank you again as always for listening to the Rebuild podcast, and please enjoy our chat. All right. Well, I am very excited to have on Mary Kay Cabot today from Cleveland.com. She's been covering the Browns for as long as I can remember. I remember growing up reading when I was still getting the, the plain dealer every day. So I'm excited to have Mary Kay on. Um, Mary Kay, I guess it's wild. Like this is 
maybe the longest the, the Brown season has gone on for me in, in recent memory. So it's weird to, to say that the season only ended about a week ago when usually we're, <laughs> we're weeks into the off season by now. Um, how was sort of, I guess this is more of a general question, but yeah, how was this season for you just kind of on the beat, um, both dealing with all the new protocols that have sort of happened and, and yeah, just going on a playoff run that was a little bit, I think, unexpected, um, especially at the beginning of the year? Well, first of all, as far as covering the team amid the pandemic, uh, obviously it's an adjust. Everything is an adjustment for everybody right now. But the thing that I missed the most about uh, covering the football team in the conventional way was getting a chance to get to know the players and, and really, you know, finding those stories and, you know, kind of walking around the locker room and getting, getting to know guys here and there. I mean, over the years, I've really tried to develop those relationships. So by the time you get to the end of a season, uh, a player will sort of have a a trust level. And by the time I got to the end of last season, Kareem Hunt felt comfortable opening up to me about what his previous year had been like, uh, what what his year out of football was like. uh, And and they just kind of get to know how you work a little bit. Sometimes you have an opportunity to – you know, just talk a little bit about non-football things. And that's what I miss the most. I mean, that that is, you know, I have really kind of made my career on developing those relationships. And so I hope we can get back to some of that because it's been really, really challenging in that way. Now, the Browns have done a tremendous job of conducting all these Zooms and, and putting guys on the Zooms and everything. But it just doesn't have that natural, in-person, organic feel of relationship building. So that's been that's been the hardest part for me this year. Um, as far as going and uh, covering the playoffs, first and foremost for me, it's always about how I feel about the fans and how they feel about everything. And so, therefore, I'm so happy that Browns fans had an opportunity uh, to have their football team go to the playoffs this year. You know, we have to stay objective, right? So even though I grew up here, even though my whole entire family are, are diehard fans, I mean, I always kid around. My mom's 89 years old. For every single road trip that I've gone on for the last 30 years, the last thing that she always says to me is, bring home a winner. <laughs> bring up the winner. And, I mean, that, that's just precious. You know, that's just – that's that's how people here feel. But – you know, I have to stay relatively objective, but I have uh, just really appreciated the fact that Browns fans got to have this joy this year, and they so deserved it. They just so deserved it. Browns fans have hung in there through thick and thin. You know, I, I've just, all those years I would be in the stadium looking around just thinking, wow, they're here. It's freezing cold. It's snowing today, and they're in those stands. And they just never gave up on this football team. And there's such a love affair between Browns fans and this football team. And it's finally time uh, for this whole generation to experience what, you know, what, what I, you know, what, you know, my generation had when we were younger, when, you know, the, the Bernie Kosar teams were going to the AFC championship games and then previous generations of watching the cardiac kids. And then generations before that of watching the championship teams and the Jim Brown teams and, you know, it, it's time. It's time for these younger people to experience the joy of winning Cleveland Browns. 
Most definitely. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of, yeah, not being able to be in the locker room and sort of have those one-on-one conversations off to the side when it's not even an on the record thing or anything like that. And just developing those relationships. I've, I've never been a full on beat reporter, but I've spent some time in locker rooms. I've done some stories where I've had to go in the locker rooms and talk to people. And I, I imagine that it is very hard to sort of replace that rapport that you can develop with, with people in the locker room. So you know, since everything was essentially through Zoom, did you have to, was there anything you could do to sort of emulate how you've sort of worked in the past when you did have locker room access? Or was this sort of a learn as you go um, type of experience for you as you sort of went through the season and realized, okay, like most of my interactions are going to be through these Zoom calls where maybe players can be a little bit more reserved and be a little bit more ready with their answers because they're not in person and they're sort of prepared for these interview sessions. Yeah, I mean, I, I will do things differently going forward. What I, di- I didn't do enough of trying to get sort of maybe the one-on-one interviews. I got a few uh, one-on-one interviews, but most of them were sort of like phone interviews. And, and that's just not the same either. So sure. I, will, I will do my job a little differently going forward and try to do, uh, you know, get to know guys a little bit more uh, one-on-one. And I just, you know, you get so caught up in the day-to-day of, oh, okay, today's Baker Day, and, you know, they're giving us Jarvis today, and they're giving us Miles today that, you know, it's hard to, to step out of that and try to, to find some other things and, and do some other things. And I, and I did. I did do that. Uh, I did some, you know, pretty cool podcasts and things like that. Uh, got some cool interviews, like with Chris Long, uh, who was the, you know, former NFL player that got really, really super close to Miles Garrett. Um, I, I did a nice uh, podcast with him, a nice interview talking about all about miles and, and, you know, so that was, that was fun. And so I plan to do more of those kinds of things and, you know, just approach it and attack it in a little bit of a different way, because I just have to wonder when we are ever going to be getting back in that locker room again. I just, you know, I fear that it's, it's not going to happen right away. Yeah, I uh, I would tend to agree with you. I think people were more optimistic at the beginning of this, and the longer this has sort of gone on, it's been a little tougher. Um, wanted to ask you one more sort of beat-related question. Um, you know, you've obviously spent um, a lot of seasons covering not great teams, um, and with those not great teams comes drama and comes infighting and and all of that. But I guess on the flip side of that, that can also lead to as a as a journalist more stories and more opportunities for, you know, finding things behind the scenes. I don't know exactly how would you like to say it, but, you know, when you're covering a winning team, there usually seems, especially, you know, from an outsider's perspective, um, to be less of that and things are a little more harmonious and maybe there's not as many opportunities for not even quote unquote juicy stories. I think juicy has like a weird baggage attached to it, but just maybe not as many opportunities for, for that kind of thing. So I guess my question to you is like, was it, do you prefer covering like over all these years, like covering a bad team where there are these opportunities to sort of dig deep on some stories that maybe you get a tip and you hear things and, um, or was this like a nice change of pace where maybe there weren't as many of as that sort of going on and it was more just kind of like a regular football team? Well, it's, it's, it is a great question because we had so many things to cover over the years. I mean, we had Johnny Manziel floating around on swans. Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, we had things to cover. I mean, there were uh, the Browns were 
always in the news. There were always headlines. There was always interest in the team, most of the time for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, because Freddie Kitchens was wearing a Pittsburgh started it t-shirt or because the Browns were blowing up the front office again. Uh, they were always, always in the news. And I was, I was thinking to myself a few times, I said, geez, the, the Patriots writers, you know, that they, they must be, just be so bored, you know, I mean, <laughs> show up every Sunday, cover a victory, an occasional loss here and there, go to the playoffs, coach always stays the same, quarterback always stays the same. I mean, we really did have uh, a lot of stuff to cover over all of those years. And, um, and I actually, you know, I, I can't say that I, that I absolutely hated it. I enjoyed covering the team even through the, uh, through the crazy years because there was so much to write about. There was so much to write about. Uh, but there's, um, you know, this new regime right now, even if there is a losing season or if things start to go wrong, I just feel like Kevin Stefanski is so professional. Andrew Barry is so professional. I just don't think we're going to have the zaniness and the craziness and the popping off. And, you know, I mean, these guys know how to get a handle on situations. They know how to, ad- how to address things. I mean, they're professionals, they're adults. And I just don't think we're going to see some of the dysfunctional stuff that we've seen in the past. Yeah. Um, I don't think so either. It has uh, been a very refreshing change to sort of, yeah, like you said, there were so many crazy stories over the years and to have a season where you're not sort of bracing for the next report that's going to come out sometime during the week um, was definitely a nice change. Um, you mentioned Stefanski and the sort of first team thing I wanted to ask you was obviously, like you said, it was hard to, it, you weren't able to be in the locker room. So it can be hard a little bit to maybe get a sense of how exactly like the team responded to Stefanski in more like intimate environments and that stuff. But I imagine that um, the difference between Freddie Kitchens last year and Stefanski this year, just in watching interactions and how the team sort of related to him or um, took his messaging was different. So I, I wanted to ask you sort of from your point of view, the, the biggest difference between Kevin Stefanski and how he sort of runs things and, and um, his sort of grasp on the team and just how different it was from your experience covering that, that one year of Freddie Kitchens as the head coach last year. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, um, Kevin Stefanski is, he's organized, he's professional, he's self-assured, he's mature, you know, I mean, he is all of these things, he's got all these qualities that you want in a head coach, whereas uh, Freddie didn't always know exactly how to handle situations uh, the way that you would expect a head coach to handle them. He just really didn't. Um you know, I, I don't know that he always handled interactions with players correctly. Therefore, you know, there were lots of uh, fires to put out with, with players. Uh, I think he let the inmates run the asylum to a certain degree. I don't think he sold his message well enough about, uh, you know, this is how we do things. Kevin Stefanski got a very quick handle and grip on, you know, keeping things in house, uh, you know, not talking about it, but doing it. Uh, and, and they just, they followed his lead in that way. And, and Freddie had a lot of, uh, he just wasn't really ready to be a head coach. Now maybe somewhere down the road, he will be, uh, but, but he wasn't. And, um, and it was just unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's a big job and you have to be ready 
to handle all the things that come at you in one day. And there's a lot of crisis management. Andrew Berry was talking about that yesterday. There's a lot of crisis management that you have to do. So it's not all just trying to come up with X's and O's for a football game. You know, you have to figure out, especially this year, you know, who's going to be your receivers coach on a given day when your receivers coach has COVID, you know? So, um, so this, this year had its own set of unique challenges and Kevin Stefanski really was unflappable and he was able to handle all the things that, that you needed to handle. Uh, Freddie did some things that just, uh, you know, it's just not what the, the head guy needs to be doing. For sure. Um, and you mentioned Andrew Barry and sort of um, some of the stuff he hit on um, in his press conference. I believe it was yesterday. Um, but talking about Baker and, you know, a lot of conversations, obviously, throughout the year, and especially early on in the year when Baker was sort of up and down, was sort of this upcoming decision about are the Browns going to pick up his his player option? Even, I think, you know, after that initial Steelers game where he had maybe one of the worst performances of his kind of career, it was kind of there are questions about, like, his future in general with this team. And I think you've seen just such a 180 from from obviously how he played, especially after the bye week. Um you know, you were tweeting about how Andrew Barry really doesn't like to kind of give any like, oh, we'll definitely pick up his option or, oh, any of that. and kind of keeps that stuff close to the vest. But do you sort of get the sense that after the season, especially after the second half that Baker had, that that he he's going to be the guy moving forward? And, and that's sort of been put to rest in terms of like keeping maybe one eye out for, for other quarterback options. Do you think Baker did enough in the second half to really solidify himself moving forward? I think so. Yes, I, I really do believe that. I think that uh, I think that these guys feel that they have their quarterback for the next decade or whatever the case may be. Now, will that show up in an extension in this offseason? I can't honestly say that I know that that will happen yet. Uh, what I have been writing and saying uh, is that I do believe that they will go ahead and pick up his fifth year option, which is a guaranteed sum of money. Uh, in the $20 million neighborhood, probably, for 2022. And that buys them some time. That has to be picked up by May 3rd. Once that's done, they know that they have him through 2022. And, you know, and, and beyond that, you could even, uh, you know, franchise him after that. So if you don't decide to necessarily wrap him up to the big blockbuster extension that a guy like Josh Allen will probably get this off season, you can buy yourself a little bit of time. So we'll see how it goes, or they might just, just jump in and say, Hey, look what he did in the last half. And, and we're gung ho and, and we're going to reward him for that. So there are several different ways that you can approach it. Um, and, and I think that they'll make those decisions over the next, they'll really work hard and dig in over the next month or so and decide how they want to do that. For sure. Um, and it's also, I'm curious too, what it's been like covering him because uh, Baker can sometimes be a little feisty in press conferences. Obviously, um, you know, he's had some back and forth with Tony Grossi before. Um, he, he gave a little bit of a, a snappy response to one of your questions a couple weeks ago too. He can, you know, it, there's days where it seems like he's not in a great mood and, and he gets a little, um, yeah, a little feisty with it. What's it been like kind of your experience? I guess, you know, it's been three years now. What's your experience with Baker in terms of just getting to know him and, um, you know, covering him as a, as a beat reporter? Well, that one time that you're talking about, and now I'm like, I, he said something like, um, oh no, I was going to go out there and, uh, and drop the ball four more times. Yeah, it was very, it was very sarcastic. I was asking him if he was going to, you know, really use uh, what happened in the Jets game as fuel to motivate him after that. And I was just kind of trying to get him to embellish. And again, it's hard on zoom. Okay. You're not standing there with the person face to face and, 
Um, but the thing about Baker is if you went back and listened to every single answer to every one of my questions over the last three years, he usually doesn't do that to me. He's sure. usually really, really good about answering my questions and actually quite expansive uh, when he does so. Uh, and I, I always try to give him an opportunity to sort of give us the big picture of a situation, you know, even uh, after games or on a Wednesday, instead of just, you know, what, you know, what happened on that play, uh, I, I, you know, try to give him an opportunity to uh, kind of tell it like it is right now, you know, give us the state of yourself, the state of the team, the state of your mindset, you know, things like that. And he's always really good about those kinds of things. So uh, that was a, that was an aberration that, that one time. And I attributed it to the fact that he was feeling the heat. Okay. He was feeling the heat. I mean, they just lost a game against the Jets, against the Jets. Okay. Yeah. Against the New York Jets that had won one game. And, um, and that was an opportunity to, to, to make the playoffs. And they knew that it was down to one more game after that. So the heat was on. I mean, really, we all have to remember these are young, young guys in certain cases and they've got the weight of the world on their shoulders. So I think he was starting to feel it a little bit. Uh, so I didn't take that too personally. Um, He's been okay. He's been really super mature this whole entire season. There have only been maybe one or two of those little snippy answers. He used to do it all the time last year. Yes. Um, but, but he's grown up a lot in that way. And like Andrew Barry said, he's grown up before our eyes. And I think he matured in a lot of ways. And I think Kevin Stefanski has a lot to do with that. And Alex Van Pelt. I really do. I think Kevin Stefanski basically said to him when he met with him, like, we're not doing this anymore. Like, you're not getting into it with Colin Coward. You're not getting into it with Rex Ryan anymore. You know, you're not doing that. You know, like, knock it off. <laughs> I just have a feeling that some of that stuff was said and verbalized because, I mean, he's he's different. He he was very different this year. And I'm sure some of, some of the time he was probably biting his tongue uh, and wanted to say things, but he didn't. And that, and, and that's, you know, that's progress. Now you still want to see some of the dangerous Baker, you know, you, that's, that's what makes Baker Baker, right? You still want to see some of that stuff. I mean, the, the flag planting, you know, just the, you know, just that emotional guy that he is. And then, you know, the guy that'll try to mix it up or not shake your hand, whatever the case may be, you know, you don't want to completely lose all of that. Because that edge is what got him to where he is. He wouldn't be here if he didn't have that. He had to have the world against him and believe that nobody believed in him to find it within himself to walk on and become the starter on two teams, to become the Heisman Trophy winner, to become the number one overall pick in the NFL, and then ultimately this year to make the playoffs in such a crazy year. Definitely. And I think there's definitely something to, you know, I think a lot of us, myself included, were pretty excited when Freddie Kitchens was hired because you saw these snippets of them on the sideline together and they were very, it seemed like they had this really great kind of rapport with each other. But then I think to your point, especially about Freddie, just not really being prepared to kind of deal with everything that comes with being a head coach. And I think that trickled down to even, you know, Baker kind of feeling like he could kind of do what he wanted. And, and Freddie was maybe not the sort of not even disciplinarian, but I think your point about how Kevin maybe came in and said, Hey, like we're cutting this stuff out. Like, let's just go play football. Um, I think that's a huge difference in terms of um, Baker last year and this year. And I think your point about the maturity both on and off the field is a really good one. Um, 
I wanted to ask you too about someone that, you know, it's weird, like thinking about Odo Beckham Jr. He's been, he really hasn't been a part of the team for months. So it's so weird to sort of like think about him and remember that, oh yeah, Odell Beckham Jr. is, is still on the Cleveland Browns. And, um, you know, he, he tweeted today at the, you know, Kevin Stefanski, I think won the, I, I forget, pro football writers award mm-hmm. for, um, yep. for coach of the year and, and Odell, uh, quote tweeted and said, of course. And so, you know, and he had a message about how, how bad he wanted to, be a part of this playoff run on his Instagram the other day. But for the most part, he's kind of been out of sight and out of mind. And there's always rumors flying around about what are the Browns going to do with him? He's obviously still under contract for, I think, three, three more years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he's obviously making a lot of money and um, hasn't quite settled in as a part of this Browns team. And the injury, you know, obviously wiped out a big portion of that. Um, Andrew Barry's al- always been very tight lipped about their plans with Odell, but he did sort of give him a vote of confidence and, Stefanski seems at least publicly to to be excited to get him back. Do you have any sort of sense of what you think the Browns are going to do with Odell and and if he's going to sort of be a part of this team um, next year, but also kind of down the road? You know, I I think there is a a decent chance that he will be part of this team uh, next year for for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, he's got a guarantee right now in his contract of $12.791 million. That is already in, in effect. So there's only one way that, that they're parting ways with him, and that would be via a trade. They can't cut him because they would still have 13, almost $13 million on their cap, and they sure. certainly are not going to do that. So they, they really like him as a, as a player and as a person. He's gotten pretty close with Kevin Stefanski. He's pretty close with Andrew Barry. And now you, you're starting to see that Odell Beckham Jr. really has uh, a lot of respect for this regime. I mean, he really likes Kevin Stefanski. I mean, that, that, that goes a long way. When you believe in your coach and you like your coach and you trust your GM, that means a lot. Odell didn't have that with the Giants. He he and Dave Gettleman, they didn't get along. So he really feels like he's being treated fairly, honestly, and I think that's all good. The only way, once again, that it will come down to him being gone is if they make the decision that they just don't want to pay fifteen over $15 million for him next year because that's what he's owed. Now, that guaranteed money goes away after this year. So after this year, they, they wouldn't have any dead money on their cap. So it's really just, you know, that – this one year that they have to look at in terms of uh, a huge cap hit one way or the other. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's tough to say. It might also be hard to trade a player coming off a torn ACL, a, a player that will be turning 29 next year. Uh, and it's hard to unload that big of a salary. That's a big salary to, for somebody to take on in a year when the cap could conceivably uh, go down to $175 million, the collectively sure. bargained floor. So, you know, it's not like there's 20 teams that are just waiting to pay a, a 29-year-old receiver coming off of a torn ACL $15 million next year. So it, would probably, it probably would be somewhat hard to trade him. And so I don't know. I don't know yet if they will do that. I don't know if they don't want to do that or want to do that. It will be, I'm sure everything will be discussed um, because they have to think about how they want to use their money this year and use, use those cap resources. Uh, so everything's on the table. 
but uh, I can't honestly say I know how this one will turn out yet. Um, but the, the one thing that people do, do need to understand is they like Odell as a player and as a person. And I think that's important to know. Definitely. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens. I, I, it's frustrating. I think, uh, you know, that he, the, the part of the season he missed was the part of the season when the Browns offense really sort of started to gel, um, and really started to find themselves. So I think it's frustrating because I would have loved to see what happened, you know, when the offense really came together and maybe he understood his role a little bit better and, and kind of was able to take off with the rest of the offense and, and hopefully with, a more full training camp and, and maybe an, an actual preseason too um, with Odell back healthy this upcoming season, that that will um, kind of help integrate him a little bit more, but it, it will be fascinating to see. Um, last kind of team question I wanted to ask you, Mary Kay was um, just about what you think Andrew Barry's biggest challenge this off season is going to off season is going to be. I, I sort of lean towards the defensive side of the ball kind of, just in general, I think the linebacking core could probably use an upgrade. You know, they're going to lose potentially Larry Ogunjobi. He's going to be a free agent. Obviously, Olivier Vernon is going to be gone as well, and he's coming off surgery. And um, so they have some maybe defensive line stuff they need to address to kind of help Miles Garrett. Um, you don't know what you're going to get from Grant Delpit. Who knows what Greedy Williams might look like come back from injury. There's just a lot of questions on the defensive side of the ball. Um, and maybe I'm leading you into the answer here. So if, if, if you think it's something else, let me know. But um, that's kind of where I'm at with it. What do you think Andrew Barry's biggest challenge is to sort of address this offseason to take the Browns to sort of the next level where they really could make a run, be a legitimate Super Bowl contender next season? Well, the first thing that I would do is I would go out and get another really good pass. Uh, now, as you mentioned, Olivier Vern is, is coming off of the ruptured Achilles. Uh, I think they need somebody else uh, to fill that spot that, that is going to be a really good and formidable pass rusher that can take some of that pressure off of Miles Garrett. I mean, you never really had those two guys working together at the same time where they were both, uh, where they were both a force and getting sacks. You had Miles who started strong and Olivier who started slowly. And then when Miles got COVID and just wasn't himself, Olivier kind of picked up the ball. Now, if they have two guys screeching off the edge and wreaking all kinds of havoc, that's what they need. And I think Miles is going to come back and have another phenomenal year. And now if he has somebody on the other side, uh, I think that would be, that is what they need more so than anything. In fact, I would probably look for two of those kind of guys and they're not easy to find. Uh, but I would probably focus on that in the first round of the draft. I would trade up if I had to get it. I would go for pass rushers. I would go for defensive linemen that can get to the quarterback, not just on the edge, but from the middle. So I'd probably look to find somebody else from a defensive tackle position uh, that that can be a, a menacing force in there as well. So those would be priorities for me. I would also – as you mentioned, they need to bolster the linebacker position, but for them, that's not really a place where they feel they need sort of a marquee kind of a guy or that they're going to spend $20 million a year on a guy or 15, whatever. Um, but you do need an upgrade amongst your linebackers. And then I would still go and try to find a starting cornerback because you don't know if Greedy is going to, going to be able to come back and be exactly what they need coming off of the nerve injury. So, Pass rusher or two, linebacker, cornerback. That's where I would go. And then you have to add some pieces to the offense. But for the most part, 
they have what they need there, providing Odell comes back and, and all that. Yeah, and I think it's just so exciting to be able to finally, especially with the quarterback now in place, like not have to think about, oh, what do they have to do on the offensive side? Oh, what quarterbacks should I be watching tape from in college cause, so I can familiarize myself? And hopefully a couple of these things happen on the defensive side of the ball, and they have a really, really well-rounded team. And I think that more than anything, I mean, the season was amazing. That playoff victory over the Steelers was pretty – was still feels like the most surreal thing that has ever happened. And – um it's just, it's exciting to be able to finally, for what feels like since 1999, go into an off season where you don't have to address the position that is going to make or break your team. They have Baker Mayfield, they have an offensive system, they have an identity. Um, and now it's really kind of just like, okay, yeah, let's upgrade the defense. Let's do this and that. But I mean, that is just such a huge change from, from all these past seasons. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great. I mean, if, if you've got your quarterback, uh, then you're in great shape because everything obviously flows from there. What they now, what they have to start doing is trying to figure out how are you going to get past the Patrick Mahomes? How are you going to get past the Josh Challens? How are you going to get to where you need to be to get to the Super Bowl and win it? And, and that will, that will be a challenge. And unfortunately for them, this was a huge missed opportunity last weekend to be able to hold those guys uh, to 22 points to have Patrick Mahomes in for just, you know, not even three quarters. Uh, it, it was an opportunity for them to get to the AFC championship game. And it's going to be really hard from here on out because you're not going to be able to count on him missing half the game in the next 10 years. So, yeah, you're right. Unfortunately, there are a lot of very good and young quarterbacks in the AFC still. So um, that window is uh, for them is still pretty wide open. Um, Mary Kay, final thing I wanted to ask you, and this is more of just like a sort of your sort of personal you know, it's 2021, but it's still for a female reporter that has a prominent spot sort of as as a Browns beat reporter, too. And someone just reporting on a team, I still think it can be tough, especially on social media. And this was just something I wanted to ask you, because I know that for you, sometimes there is a weird thing, especially in like Cleveland Browns Twitter, where I'm sure you have dealt with stuff on social media that is maybe not the most pleasant stuff to deal with in the world, whether it's just comments from people or, or whatever it may be. I just wanted to ask you, especially as social media has become such a more prominent part of your job, like I'm sure when you, you know, started out, like it just, it was not a thing and it was not something that, um, you know, you had to really deal with. And now it's become such a huge part of the job and such a huge part of getting your stories out and getting a following and all of that stuff. But that obviously there's a flip side of it. And especially for female reporters in the industry, it just doesn't feel like the progress has been made where it, it's become a normalized thing as, as maybe it is with some of your male counterparts. And I just wanted to ask you how you sort of deal with it and, and how you sort of have learned to maybe deal with the sort of negativity that can, that is just always a part of Twitter um, and how you've sort of learned to deal with some of those things. And, and um, as you've kind of gone along in your career, especially as um, social media has just become more and more prominent, I'm just very kind of curious about that for you. It's, it's something that I, I don't feel like I deserved in any way, shape or form because I'm out here constantly working my tail off. As you said, you've been reading me since you were really young and you know that if you just took away, uh, some of that negative stuff that you see on Twitter, what you would find is, um, you know, podcasts, features, story, you know, just like, really 24 seven intense coverage, trying to do the best that I can all the time. Right. Um, 
so I think you, you probably come from a place where you wouldn't really understand why there would be some of that backlash. But it's just funny because I actually have communicated with like one or two people that like they would like call me out. And I was just curious. I'd be like, wait, where is that coming from? So there's actually like one guy that I DM'd and I, and I, and I just DM'd him. I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a risk. And I DM'd him sure. and I'm like, have you ever even read anything that I've ever written? Have you ever, ever read an article that I've written? And, and this, this one guy was like, well, no, but you know, I just see that people always give you crap. So I figure you must deserve crap. And then that is, that's the world of social media. That is the absolute world of social, of social media. So the way that I deal with it most of the time is I don't read those mentions a lot because it just doesn't do, it doesn't do me any good, but occasionally I have dipped a toe in, in the water to see what's going on and, um, and, and come to realize that there's some things that have been unfair, unfair attacks on me that I, that I will continue to address. And um, maybe, maybe they'll get turned around a little bit in the future. When I, once I realized that there was, you know, someone that kind of had it in for me because I blocked them on Twitter, then I started to see how this all went. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't roll like that. I mean, that's not how I live my life. Uh, that's not how I do my job. Uh, I do it with integrity. I, I try to do the right thing and then I do the next right thing. I try to treat people the right way. And, um, and I would think that someone like you that, that grew up wanting to know what's going on with the Browns would appreciate what I've done for all these years in, in challenging circumstances, right? I mean, like really, really challenging circumstances. People don't know the half of what, uh, what I've had, <laughs> not even a third of what, of what I've had to go through to get to this point. But I always felt like, you know, you, you have to take the high road. And I always felt like I was trying to set an example for those that would come after me because what I'm doing right now, I'm doing it like for your daughter (laughs) so that, so that she could say, wow, maybe someday I can do something that nobody else thought that I could do. And now we've got women that are, you know, we've got a woman, Sarah Thomas, that is going to be an official in the Super Bowl, And that's amazing. Right. We had, we had another Sarah that kicked in, in a college football game. I mean, things are happening that never, ever happened before. And, you know, it, it's, it's been, it's been a rewarding job and it's been challenging. And I, I'm not going to let some of those people take away from the heart and soul that I've put into this job because that's really what I've done all these years. For sure. Um, well, just from, from personally me and a lot of other people, we, appreciate your coverage over the years and I think of anyone now if I'm in terms of breaking news about the Browns and and getting scoops and stuff I feel like you've become one of the one of the best in the in the business out there um, for the Browns so it is uh it is appreciated your coverage is appreciated your time is appreciated um so thank you for what you do and 
we'll look forward to reading your coverage of a hopefully very successful Browns team as we go down the road here. So uh, Mary Kay, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Of course.